Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in 1 Kings 17 through 19. Come Follow Me has designated just a few chapters this week for this section of Scripture. If ever there was a prophet that symbolized power and might and majesty and God moving in miraculous ways, it's the prophet Elijah. And so we're going to focus a lot on Elijah and on his life. But before we do that, we feel compelled to go back and do chapter 12. At the beginning of this year, we broke the Old Testament into nine time periods. And so they were, number one, the beginning, the creation and the aftermath. Number two was Abraham and his family. So we saw the covenant in a family. Number three was Egypt. And that was looking at the covenant in bondage. Number four, they go into the desert. And then they come out of the desert and they establish the promised land. So Israel in Canaan is number five. And that was the judges. And we saw Ruth in that time period. And then they establish a kingdom. And for three kings, they're united. These kings rule over all of Israel. And then we go into a divided kingdom period. And chapter 12 is the division. It's the reason the kingdom split. And it also sets up the problem as to why the northern kingdom turns away from God and is destroyed much quicker than the southern kingdom. So let's go back and tackle chapter 12, because there's some really important application in both of those stories. So first of all, we remind you that Solomon is king of Israel. When Solomon dies, like is natural, his son is going to reign in his stead. His son is Rehoboam. Now, Solomon taxed the people heavily. And I, for one, am willing to pay high taxes if something really good comes of it, like a temple. I would be happy to pay a high tax if we established a temple. And they have. They've built a temple. But now that the temple's built, the people are saying, this grievous tax needs to go away. So in verse 4 of chapter 12, kind of the representative group, the elders of Israel, come to Rehoboam and they say, thy father made our yoke grievous. Now, therefore, make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke, which he put upon us, lighter, and we will serve thee. That's their request. Lower the taxes and we'll all be united and you'll be our king and we'll be one big happy kingdom. He says, let me have three days to think about it. Verse 6, Rehoboam consults with what he calls the old men, which I think we're talking about the wise, the experienced, your parents, your bishop, your stake president, maybe an older sibling, someone who has really good counsel for you. And these men say to Rehoboam, verse 7, if thou wilt be a servant unto this people, I love that phrase. It's kind of an oxymoron, right? A servant king. If thou wilt be a servant as their king unto this people, a la King Benjamin, and wilt serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be thy servants forever. In other words, lower the taxes, Rehoboam. Think of them. Focus on their needs. Lower the taxes, and we will be a united kingdom. 
And the very next word in verse 8 is, but he forsook the counsel of the old men. And then he turned to his buddies. He consulted with the young men that were grown up with him. This is where we go to the people who tell us what we want to hear. We all have people like the young man who are going to tell us something that isn't in our best interest, but might be in their best interest. And so the young men say, verse 10 through 11, don't lower the taxes, be more man than your dad was, raise the taxes, because obviously they're going to live it up with him in the palace, right? It's in their best interest if the king has more money. So I think there is a great application here. Unfortunately, Jeroboam listens to his buddies. Verse 13, he forsook the old men's counsel. And verse 14, he spake unto them after the counsel of the young men. And so the reason there's a split in the kingdom is because he took advice from the wrong group. And I wonder how many times you've seen a split in a life or a split in a family or a split in a business because we took advice from the wrong group. We didn't listen to Abinadi and we burned him. And instead, we thought King Noah was our friend. Or so many different examples of that. And you may want to ponder or have a great discussion this week about taking advice from the wrong people whose motives may not be in our best interest. It will cost Rehoboam a good chunk of his kingdom. So when they see the position of the king, verse 16, the people answered the king saying, what portion have we in David? And then they also quote Second Samuel 20, verse 1, to your tents, O Israel, that's this message that, hey, we're leaving. To your tents, O Israel, is a, is a reminder that we're going to rebel now. And so at the end of verse 16, it says, so Israel departed unto their tents, and Rehoboam is going to send a tax collector down to collect tribute, and the Israelites aren't going to like that. So verse 18 says that all Israel stoned him, the tax collector, with stones that he died. And so verse 19, I think, is a big clue. We read in verse 19, so Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. So the author, I believe, is writing from the perspective of the south, from the kingdom in the south, which is Judah, and they're saying from their time period, which is probably the exile, from this time forward, from 921 BC till today, the exile, Israel and Judah are no longer one unit. The house of Israel is divided. This is a big deal. This is where we now have two kingdoms. So the kingdom in the north, that man Jeroboam, who's kind of been voice for the people, is going to be appointed king in the north. And the northern kingdom will be known as the kingdom of Israel. In the south, Rehoboam does maintain a little portion of his kingdom. It says in verse 21, when Rehoboam was came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin. So the southern kingdom is pretty much Judah and Benjamin. The northern kingdom is everyone else. So northern tribes or kingdom of Israel or Ephraim, because that's the dominant tribe, or Samaria, because that's kind of where their headquarters are going to be. That's all the northern tribe. And now we have the 10 tribes and they will be called the Lost Ten Tribes. And as soon as we say Ephraim, some of you are realizing, wait a minute, Ephraim is one of the Lost Ten Tribes? Yes. 
your reference on that is going to be 2 Kings 17. In 721 BC, Assyria comes from the north and conquers the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of Samaria. So it's called the fall of Samaria or the scattering of the tribes. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But from this time forward, from 1 Kings 12 to the end of the narrative of 2 Kings, these books, 1 and 2 Kings, are the story told, I believe, from the southern perspective of the kingdom of Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And to throw some dates at you, 921 BC to 721 BC is the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel are going to have 20 monarchs. According to the author of Kings, all of them are wicked. There's going to be five familial dynasties in the north. They're all set up in Israel in the north. All were short-lived and ended by assassination or by violence. Seven of the 20 kings are murdered, and one of them dies by suicide. So know that during this 200-year period, if you're a king in Israel, you have a 40% chance of dying by murder or suicide. So those are not good odds. Now, Judah in the south, which Bryce has mentioned is Judah and Benjamin. This is known as the southern kingdom. They too are going to have 20 monarchs. But the kings of Judah reign from 921 BC all the way to when Nephi leaves in 587 or 586 BC. So the kingdom of Israel lasts a lot longer. In fact, over 100 years longer. So as the kingdom of Israel ends in 721, the kingdom of Judah ends in 586. So it starts with Rehoboam in 922, and it goes all the way to the time of Nephi. Now, Judah has 20 kings as well, and according to the author of First and Second Kings, 12 of them were wicked, and four advanced their nation economically and religiously. Probably the king in here that's the best, that's described as the most righteous, is going to be Josiah. Josiah is going to be the embodiment of all the hopes of the Deuteronomistic editors. He's going to do all the things that Deuteronomy says a good king should do, and we'll get to him in a couple of weeks. But just know now, we've got two kingdoms. They each have 20 kings, and they're generally described as bad. I mean, Israel gets a lot of negative publicity. I mean, all the kings are bad, but Judah's not much better. I mean, most of them are bad as well. So that's the story, big picture of the kingdoms, Judah and Israel. In the show notes, we'll put a chronology with dates of who the kings were, and we even reference, here's the verses you can read. And so I think a chart like this is really helpful so that if you get lost in your reading and you're like, okay, wait, who is Joash? This chart will be very helpful so you can kind of get your bearings. Now, there's a reason that the north is more wicked than the south, and that's the rest of chapter 12. So chapter 12 establishes the reason for the split and then kind of the reason why the North falls apart so quickly. The North is taken captive over a hundred years before the South, and there's a reason presented in the text. And that begins in verse 26 of chapter 12. See, Jeroboam, who's the king in the North, has a problem. And you remember that according to the law of Moses, on three occasions throughout the year, you were supposed to present yourself at the temple. Three times a year, you've got to go to wherever the temple is. Well, guess where the temple is? It's in the southern kingdom. It's in Jerusalem, which is part of the kingdom of Judah. So Jeroboam has a problem. If my people go to the south to worship in the temple, they may not return. 
And so in verse 27, he says, if this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So guess what he does? Starting in verse 28, he sets up false temples glorious, beautiful, eye-catching, false temples on the very way to Jerusalem. He puts one at the bottom of the kingdom. He puts one at the top of the kingdom. He puts them in strategic locations so that people who had their eye going to Jerusalem will turn. He'll catch their eyes and keep them in the north. Now, do you see the symbolism of that? Tell me Satan isn't doing the same thing today. Tell me he hasn't set up all sorts of eye-catching imitations so that he catches their eye and pulls them off the path and keeps them from going to the temple. I think you could have a wonderful discussion with your family, your friends, with a class this week about the imitations that keep us from going to the temple that catch our eye and keep us in the northern kingdom as a symbol. And so it works. He sets up these beautiful groves and they're eye-catching, and for the most part, it works. And he turns the northern kingdom to idolatry much quicker than the southern kingdom will turn to idolatry. A lot of times in the text, this is going to be referred to as, quote, the sin of Jeroboam. And one of the ways we can apply this is Jeroboam is afraid, and he makes a decision based on fear. And I like the advice by President Packer where he said, do not take counsel from your fears, have faith. And so in this instance, because Jeroboam is afraid they're going to go south during the festivals to Jerusalem, out of fear, he makes this decision. And I think this chapter, chapter 12, is a big deal for the rest of First and Second Kings because over and over again, the author will refer to the sins of Jeroboam. And it's this counter temple. And this idea of who, where the right sanctuary is, this is still going on in Jesus's day. Now, the temple of Gerizim has been taken in Jesus's day. But if you remember with the woman at the well, she's from Samaria. And she says to Jesus, well, your fathers say this, and this is where the holy site is, and our fathers say that. And Jesus basically says, I am the Messiah. But this tension does exist, not just here, but throughout the ancient world. I mean, a lot of times people had disagreements as to where sites of holiness lay. Now, with this in mind, uh, this is important as well, that when he sets up these calves or these bulls, they were conceived as the throne of God. And in all historical likelihood, Jeroboam, his intention wasn't to displace the worship of Yahweh, but merely to create alternate centers of worship, alternate to Jerusalem, where they could have their temples. I kind of see this as he's still worshiping Yahweh. In other words, this is written from the perspective of the South. But if we read Jeroboam's position, he would say that the Jews, they've gone astray. They've overtaxed us. I'm the king, and I represent the right position. Now, I'm not going to settle this issue, but I would say from his perspective, he would probably say the same thing about the house of David that the house of David is saying about the house of Jeroboam. And so with that in mind, notice what it says. 
it says in verse 31. I think this is a big deal in verse 31 because it ties us into Mosiah 11. Look in verse 31. He made a house of high places and priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. Now, that phrase of the lowest of the people, it can be translated this way, but it can also mean that he had the pick or the best. You see, it says that he made priests from the ketzot of the people. Now, that word, it comes from ketzah. It's a noun that we're working with, and it can mean a lot of things. It can mean end or extremity, or it can mean from the whole of, meaning from the whole of the group. And so what we see happening here is that Jeroboam had his pick. He had his pick of who the priests were. And I can see why the King James translators use the phrase from the lowest of the people, as this group would seem to them, by the King James translators and by the authors of 1 Kings, as the lowest or the end of the people, as they were in a state of opposition to the authorities in Jerusalem. Mosiah 11, it describes a similar event in the life of wicked King Noah. And it says, quote, For he put down all the priests which had been consecrated by his father, and he consecrated new ones in their stead, such as were lifted up in the pride of their hearts, end quote. That's Mosiah 11, verse 5. And so what I see here is not necessarily that Jeroboam is picking priests from among the commoners, but what I see here in verse 31 is he's hand-choosing his people to be priests, and these priests are his people. I think that's probably a better translation. And so what we see here is a similar thing happening in Mosiah 11. King Noah, he picks his guys to be his priests to kind of do what he wants them to do. And I think from the Southern perspective, back to the first King's narrative, the author is trying to show rival religious groups and how they interpret the law. And clearly, if you read first and second Kings, The northern kingdom's all bad. All these kings are doing bad things. And I think one of the things, at least I like to take out of this, is to not make your decisions based on fear. I think if we read it that way, for me, that's a really good application. But I also like to get into the historical weeds and say, okay, why is this chapter in here? Because like Bryce said at the very beginning of the podcast, if we understand the political ramifications of 1 Kings 12, the rest of 1 and 2 Kings make more sense. Yep. And I like to look at this as don't be fooled by an imitation, because the reason the northern tribes go astray more quickly is they are fooled by an imitation. I think that's one of the main messages, and it's all throughout the scriptures, like, are you fooled by the building that's going to lead you away from the tree? Are you fooled by the drunken woman in Revelation that's going to pull you away from the woman clothed in the sun? And that's a major theme. Remember when Jesus talked about the latter days, he says there's going to be false Christ. Don't be fooled by an imitation. Now, one more connection I want to make. Notice that he makes two golden calves and says, Behold thy gods, O Israel. Do you see that connection back to Aaron when he made the golden calf and said, These be thy gods? I just want to point out that we're here at that point that we mentioned back in Exodus. Yeah. The story of Jeroboam, this apostate, is recast back into the past to show that Aaron is doing the same thing. And we talked about that back with Exodus 32. So I want to talk about the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the question often arises, okay, what happened to the Ark? Like, where is it? And in 1 Kings 14, we read about Judah's sin. Look in verse 22. 
Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they had committed. And they're building the groves in verse 23, and we have the Sodomites in verse 24. And then it says in verse 25, it came to pass in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He even took away all, and he took away the shields of gold, which Solomon had made. And we see this with uh, Steven Spielberg when he does Raiders of the Lost Ark. He portrays this in his movie that the Ark was taken down to Egypt. And I think he's getting it here from 1 Kings 14. Now, We read here in Kings that the Egyptians take the articles of the temple, but it doesn't say the ark. So what happened to the ark? Like, where is it? Now, just know, I'm not going to settle it. Like, I don't know. I mean, if I could tell you where the ark is, we'd make a movie out of it, right? That'd be great. But we have some different historical sources that give us clues. And we link this in the show notes. But if you go to 2 Maccabees chapter 2, it indicates that when the Babylonians are coming to take and destroy the first temple, that Jeremiah, acting under divine guidance, commanded that the ark be hid in a cave. And so he takes it and he takes the altar of incense and he seals up the ark of the covenant in this cave. Now remember, Jeremiah was a contemporary of Nephi. And some of Jeremiah's friends try to follow him and mark the way so they can see where the ark is, but they couldn't find it and they couldn't find the cave. And when Jeremiah learned what they had done, he reprimanded these individuals saying, quote, no one must know about this place until God gathers his people together again and shows them mercy. At that time, he will reveal where these things are hidden and the dazzling light of his presence will be seen in the cloud as it was in the time of Moses, and on the occasion when Solomon prayed that the temple might be dedicated in holy splendor. Now, if this story is true, then the Egyptians didn't take the ark, but rather they took the articles made of gold, possibly as tribute to not sack the city. Now, opinions differ, but this is what I think we do know, that when the second temple was built, it seems to indicate that the second temple, built right about the time of 500 B.C., That temple lasts until through Jesus' day and is destroyed in 70 AD by Rome after Jesus has been crucified. We think that second temple did not have the Ark of the Covenant. And why do we think this? Well, we think it because of Josephus' account. Now, what he tells us is that in 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey laid siege to Jerusalem. This is about 63 years before Jesus is born. And when he finally gets into Jerusalem, he demands the privilege to enter into the Holy of Holies. And when he does, he comes out and basically says, I don't see what all all the hubbub is about. The Holy of Holies is just an empty room. This is Margaret Barker's account. In her book, The Great High Priest, The Temple Roots of Christian Liturgy, She says, the Holy of Holies in the second temple was empty. There was no ark. When Josephus described Pompey's entry into the temple and into the Holy of Holies, which none but the high priest was permitted to enter, he said that Pompey saw the menorah and the lamps and the table and the libation vessels and the centers of solid gold. There is no mention of anything that could have been in the Holy of Holies. And so her contention is this, that the second temple change the religion of the Jews, and that Christianity was the restoration of first Israelite temple religion. Now, 
You got to read her book. She's not a Latter-day Saint. But if you take what the Book of Mormon is saying about the articles of kingship and you do a close reading of the Old Testament, we see some corollaries. We see, for example, in the Book of Mormon, they have a stone box with gold articles in it. And the Israelites had a gold box with stone articles in it. So it's kind of inverted. They have the commandments written on stone inside a gold box. And the Nephites had a stone box with God's word written in gold. And there's more here. If you want to know more, you've got to read Don Bradley's article, Piercing the Veil, Temple Worship in the Lost 116 Pages. We'll link that in the show notes. But the Nephites are essentially building an ark, and it's very similar to the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant and the articles therein. And it's associated with kingship and God's presence. And Margaret Barker contends that the second temple doesn't have these articles because the religion had changed. Now, we read here in Kings that the Egyptians take the articles of the temple. It doesn't say the ark. We have hints that perhaps Jeremiah buries the ark. We have Josephus seeming to report that the Holy of Holies was empty during the time when he raids the temple in 63 BC. We really don't see the Ark of the Covenant again in the Bible after the First Kings 8 narrative where the temple is dedicated, except for a reference in the book of Revelation. Chapter 11, verse 19, John has a vision of the temple of God up in heaven, and this is what he says. The temple of God was open in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. It seems to me that John, in the book of Revelation, sees the heavenly temple, and he sees the ark up in heaven. And so there's a lot of ink spilled on this idea of like, where is the ark? I think it makes for a really compelling movie. That's why Steven Spielberg made the film. And I think it really is great for speculation. And that's all we're doing. Like, we don't know the answer, but it seems to be something that's been important to biblical scholars over the years because the ark represents God's presence. And so some scholars see this as a sign that God's presence wasn't with the temple in the second temple because after the first temple is destroyed, whether Jeremiah moves the ark or the Babylonians take it, like we don't know. And remember, the Bible never does say that the Babylonians took the ark of the covenant. It's silent on the matter. So we don't know where it is. We don't know if Babylon took it. We don't know if Jeremiah hid it. We just don't know. But it seems to me that there's breadcrumbs inviting us to consider these things. You decide. Now we're going to leave the story of Judah here in the 14th chapter of 1 Kings, and we're going to skip ahead to the 17th chapter in 1 Kings, where we read about the north, and we read about King Ahab. He's this wicked king with a wicked wife, and he's going to contend against Elijah. We now have a very wicked king in Israel, and a very mighty prophet is going to be sent to contend against him. The king's name is Ahab. His wife is Jezebel, and the prophet is Elijah. Now, Elijah, exercising powerful keys, is going to seal the heavens. Chapter 17, verse 1, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now, you've got to see a parallel here before we jump into this. The mightiest prophet in the Book of Mormon was Nephi, son of Helaman, in the Book of Helaman, who also seals the heavens and causes it to not rain. 
So the mighty prophet of the Old Testament and the mighty prophet of the Book of Mormon are doing the same thing. I just want to point out that similarity. And both of them say, it won't rain until I say so. Bryce, I have another one. I have a slide. We'll put it in the slides for you guys. The title of the slide is, Who Am I? And then I list a bunch of things. So here they are. Who am I? I split the river in two. I made abundant food and drink. I survived without food or drink for 40 days and nights. I can make it rain or make it stop raining. I bring back the dead, and I'm an enemy to the king. Well, who is it? Now, a lot of these fit Jesus, but these also fit Moses. He made abundant food and drink. Well, God did. Jesus made abundant bread, right? Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, but did Moses make it rain? I mean, if you read the plagues narrative, depends on how you read it. Now, does Jesus split the river in two? He walks on water. Um, I'm an enemy to the king. Well, that would fit Moses. That would fit Jesus. And the answer to this obviously is Elijah. But I think one of the ways we can look at Elijah is like Bryce is saying, is he is the embodiment of all these amazing powers. He's the type for a prophet. And I would say that all prophets are types of Christ. And so when we read Elijah, we can also kind of see, if we relax our eyes a little bit, we can see Jesus in these chapters as well, because he's a prophetic type of Jesus Christ. Now, when he calls for a famine, it's going to affect himself as well. So he is going to struggle to find food and water. So for a while, he's fed by a raven that comes and brings him food. And then the brook dries up and the raven stops coming. And so he sends him to Zidon, to a place called Zarephath. Which is north of the city of Tyre. So we're outside of the territory of Israel I think another way we can see Elijah is he's extending God's message beyond the borders of Israel. Now, this is a landmark story. This is one of those major Old Testament keystone. You got to remember this beautiful symbolism. So Elijah walks into the city and asks a widow woman who the Lord has made sure is there at the right place at the right time. And he says to her in verse 10, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. Now she tells us her story. So here we have a hungry, a thirsty prophet. And that represents Christ and God who's hungry and thirsty for our righteousness, who's hungry and thirsty to bless us. And now we have a woman and we get to know her story. And she says in verse 12, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. She was gathering sticks to make what she believes is her final meal. Now that's a pattern. God sometimes shows up when we've gone as far as we possibly can. He came to them when they were rowing on the sea in the fourth watch. He came to Joseph Smith when Joseph says, at the moment of greatest alarm. He shows up in third Nephi and gives the sign probably right before they were about to be destroyed and killed because the sign hadn't been given. And I think there's a message in that, in that God does ask us to walk as far as we can. This woman has come as far as she can. 
And I don't think she's going to make a cake for herself and her son. I think this is for her son. Yeah. I think that if you're a parent and you have a hungry child and you have one meal, you're clearly going to give it to your child. Which makes this request of Elijah hard to fulfill. So Elijah makes the ultimate test. He says to the woman, fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first and bring it unto me and after make for thee and for thy son. That's the tough test. Would you give your son's final meal to God, to a prophet? And he says, look, if you do, if you're willing to give something to God, that's a sacrifice to you because God is important to you. He's willing to return so much more than you gave him. He says, if you do this, verse 14, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. Now, I believe we're in the same position. All of us today are in that same position. The God of heaven comes to us and says, would you be willing to let go of certain things, to sacrifice and to give up maybe their sins that we're holding on to? Maybe it's our money that we've come to cherish. Maybe it's our time that is so precious. The God of heaven says, if you'd spend some time doing family history work, I can send you great blessings. If you'd give a little bit of your money, I can give you bounteous blessings. This is the gospel kind of in one story. This is the request of God is if you will let go, I will replace what you give up many times over with greater blessings. And I think we could really pinpoint it to say, if you will let go of the natural man and the desires of the natural man, if you will give that to God, I will replace the desires of the natural man many times over with a joy and abundance and blessings that you can't even conceive. Are you willing to do it? Are you willing to let go of the things of the world? Are you willing to let go of that last meal and give it to God? And she does. Verse 15, she went and did according to the saying of Elijah. And I wish we had more than just that sentence. I wish we could know the whole story. But she went and did. And she and he and her house did eat many days. That's the promise of the gospel. If you will give up the little, that at that moment, from your perspective, seems like an enormous amount to give up. If you will give up two years of your life, if you will give up 10% of your income, if you will give up time, which is so precious, if you will give up the things that at the time God requires, we will receive so abundantly in exchange for that. I think there's another symbol here too, Bryce, that in just giving, there's life. And I really do believe this, that when we give and we send out goodness without expectation of return, we gain life. And what a beautiful image of a woman outside of Israel's borders, she's a widow, and Elijah comes to her. Now, if we look at Elijah through the lens of a type for Christ, 
we have Jesus sharing a meal with a widow. And culturally, if you are a widow, you're kind of on the bottom rung of the socioeconomic ladder. And clearly she's on the low end because she's down to her last meal. And yet the Savior abundantly shows love for her. I want to remind you of the words to the hymn that Joseph Smith asked John Taylor to sing in Carthage jail right before his martyrdom. We now call it a poor wayfaring man of grief. And notice in every single verse, I gave up my barrel of meal and my oil, so to speak, and received back so plentifully. Once when my scanty meal was spread, he entered not a word he spake, just perishing for want of bread. I gave him all. He blessed it, break, and ate, and gave me part. Mine was an angel's portion then. For while I fed in eager haste, the crust was manna to my taste. I gave up a loaf of bread and ate manna. In the next verse, I gave water to a thirsty man, and I drank and never thirsted more. In the next verse, I found someone who was out in a hurricane, had no place to stay. I gave him my bed and slept on the floor, and I dreamt in Eden's garden. In the next one, he was stripped and wounded and beaten and nigh to death, and and I gave him wine oil refreshment. He was healed. I had myself a wound concealed, but from that hour forgot the smart and peace bound up my broken heart. I healed him, and I was healed. In the next one, I was willing to give my life for him, and he actually did give his life for me. And I think that's Elijah and the widow. Teach that to the people that you love, that that's the God that we worship, the one who returns everything we've sacrificed abundantly. So that's the first miracle this widow is able to enjoy, but that's not the end of the blessings to her household. No, it isn't. For the rest of the chapter, we read that the sickness was sore. There's a sickness in her house. It says in verse 17 that the son of the woman fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And so we read that he takes the son of this widow woman who has passed away, and he lies him down upon his own bed. And then if we go to verse 21, we read that he, quote, stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. Now, that verse, to me, I read this as an embrace. He embraces this child, and the breath of life comes back into the child. We read in verse 22 that the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And at the end of verse 23, Elijah brings the child back to his mother and says, See thy son liveth. And it's at this point when she makes the pronouncement, By this I know that thou art a man of God and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. And that's her testimony of who he is after these two miracles. And so I see these miracles as types of Christ. He provides food miraculously, and he raises the dead. And we see Jesus doing these same 
things. And I think when Jesus does these signs to the Jews, it was a message to them about their scriptures. And also, I think it was a message that the scriptures that they had pointed to a higher truth. Now, we'll get into that in our next podcast. When when Elijah is taken to heaven and his mantle falls and Elisha wraps that mantle around himself, it's his way of symbolically saying, the authority that Elijah had, I now have. And then Jesus is going to do the very thing. Jesus is going to wrap himself in Elijah's mantle by performing the very miracles that Elijah did. And Jesus is the son of a widow woman that is raised from the dead. And not only does he do that to the widow of Nain, who loses her son, but that's a very important wrapping of Elijah's mantle. Elijah was known for raising the widow's son and multiplying her meal and her oil. And Jesus comes and does the very same thing. So that's how he wraps himself in the recognized authority of Elijah. Major miracles here that Jesus is going to duplicate. Now we're going to get into chapter 18. I would see chapter 18 as the high point of these chapters. This is the contest between the prophets of Baal or Baal and the Lord God of Israel. And Elijah is going to be the representative of the Lord. And the priests of Baal are going to have quite a few in their number. And in the middle of this chapter is the contest. Now, the chapter begins with this prophet. We don't know a ton about him, but his name is Obadiah. That's verse 3. And he is a prophet that is part of the king's court. Now, remember, Ahab is a king from the north, right around 869 to 850 BC up in Israel. And Obadiah is a member of his court. And we have this interchange that's happening between him and Ahab. Notice what it says. Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house, and Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave, and he fed them with bread and water. Now we're going to come back to that in a second. Verse 5. Ahab said to Obadiah, Go into the land unto all fountains of water, unto all brooks, peradventure we may find grass, to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not the beasts. So we have Obadiah kind of working in the king's court, doing the king's bidding. But on the down low, he's hiding the righteous prophets from Jezebel. Jezebel is the wife of Ahab, and she does some horrible things. Jezebel's hunting down the prophets, and there is going to be a prediction that she's going to die a violent death, and that death will happen in Second Kings. And Jezebel, it can be read that she is the person who is the driver of the wickedness in Israel. She's an outsider. She's a Phoenician, and she worships these other gods. And a lot of people read this narrative as she's the reason why Ahab is doing what he's doing. And so sometimes she's also portrayed as like his boss. We even have a slide that we're, we're going to share with you where it shows, it's pretty funny, where it kind of shows her as the dominant one in the marriage, at least the way I look at it. It's like a little comic from the back pew by Jeff Larson. So we'll put that in there for you. But the idea is that she's doing these bad things. So Obadiah, as part of Ahab's court, is hiding the prophets. He's kind of like a double agent. He's working both sides. And it's at this point when he comes and he sees Elijah. And he sees him in verse 7. And this is what Elijah says. It says that he met him and he knew him and he fell on his face. And Obadiah says, are you my Lord Elijah? Verse eight says, 
I am. Go and tell the Lord, meaning Ahab, behold, Elijah is here. Now in verse 9, we have this tension. Obadiah responds and he says, what have I sinned that thou would deliver thy servant, Obadiah, and that's a pun because Ebed is that word for servant, and that's the root of Obadiah's name, that you would deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me. So essentially what's going on in verse 9, when Elijah says, hey, go tell Ahab I'm here, he basically says, I really don't want to do that. Um, I don't want to upset him. In other words, I want to do what's right, but I don't want to rock the boat. And so verse 10 says, as the Lord thy God liveth, there is no nation or kingdom whither my Lord hath not sent to seek thee. And when they said he is not there, he took an oath of the kingdom and nation that they found thee not. Verse 11. Now thou sayest, go, tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here. So again, Elijah says, go tell him. And so he does. He tells Ahab that Elijah is here. That's verse 16. So I think the important thing here is in verse 9 especially is Obadiah is in a tough position. He wants to do what's right, but he also wants to stay alive. Now, parenthetically, now this is not the main thing, but I want to just pull on this thread briefly, and that's verse 4. If you look in verse 4, it says that Obadiah took the prophets and he hides them in a cave by 50s. So there's some connections here with this number 50, and he's got two groups of them, and he's hiding them in a cave. Now, when we talk about these stories of the 50 that accompany the hero, In antiquity, the 50 would be the choral arrangement, which would sing the story of the hero. Now, we see this today in movies. When you watch a movie, have you ever watched a movie and then turned the music off? It just doesn't have the persuading power that the music gives. Music, when you add it to the story of the drama, intensifies it. And so in antiquity, when the hero would go on his journey and the chorus would sing their songs, it would evoke emotion, but it was also a spiritual thing. And what's interesting is we even have 50 men of the sons of the prophets that accompany Elijah. We'll see this when we get to 2 Kings, but in 2 Kings chapter 2, we see them go with him, meaning Elijah, that these 50 sons of the prophets go with him. And they go with him to the river crossing, and they go to his ascent into heaven. So I think this is really important. Anciently, choral arrangements that were used to teach the story of the creation and the temple, these choral arrangements were in groups of 50, and they would be in seven concentric circles with a choral leader. And these 50 members of the chorus were used to describe like the creation and the heavens, and they were used in plays a lot of times. And they were really used also in the early Greek choral arrangements. And one scholar wrote, why so many people in a ring dance? The earliest tradition is the closest to the tradition of the temple cult. It should not surprise us to find that 50 attendants, much like our attendant Greek chorus, often accompany our mystery heroes through the celestial access in these ancient myths. And so we have this in some of the earliest writings. We have what's called the Epic of Gilgamesh, where he goes into the underworld, and with him are 50 people. They're called the Anunnaku, or the knowers of the way. We read that they, quote, sparkle in heaven, and on earth they know the path. In some of the Greek stuff, if you've ever read Jason and the Argonauts, he has 50 sailors that come with him when he goes to obtain the fleece. 
And at the head of the deck of the ships is this individual known as Orpheus, and he leads the sailors along in music. To accomplish their task, all 50 sailors must be initiated into the mysteries, according to the text. And so we have these myths in the ancient world of a hero that has to do these fabulous things, and they have 50 attendants with them. And we have this here with Obadiah. One scholar says, quote, the number 50 is part of the Jewish festival code, as in 50 days after Passover, the festival of Shavuot is performed celebrating the deliverance of the Torah from Mount Sinai. Now that's in tradition. Tradition states that 50 days after Passover, the Torah was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. This kind of morphs into what's called the festival of Pentecost. And in the Christian tradition, Pentecost is celebrated on the seventh Sunday after Easter. So there's some connections here with this number 50, and he's got two groups of them, and he's hiding them in a cave. And it's really interesting that the last prophet in the Book of Mormon is being hunted, and he goes in the Book of Ether, and where does he hide? He hides in a cave. It's interesting. And then you have Jesus, who's the cosmic prophet, the cosmic king, and at the conclusion of his mission, they put his body... In a cave. In a cave. So there's something going on here. We have this in other places as well. So we put this in the show notes if this is interesting to you. But the main thing is Elijah tells Obadiah, who's working for the Lord, but he's also working for Ahab. Elijah says, hey, go tell Ahab I'm here. I'm going to give Obadiah all the benefit of the doubt. And I'm going to say that Obadiah is a soldier for the Savior, but he's also working in enemy territory. And so he's trying to do the work of the Lord, but he's also working with Ahab. And so finally he says, okay, I'll tell him. So he goes and he tells him, hey, Elijah's here. And I love verse 17. When Ahab comes to Elijah, look what he says. He says, are you the guy that's troubling Israel? Remember the famine? Yeah. Like, is this this you? And I love the response Elijah gives. I had not troubled Israel but you have. And then he says, because you guys have forsaken the Lord and you're following the quote, Balim, that's plural of Baal, the the God of the Canaanites. He was the Canaanite deity. And so with this, we set up the contest between the priests of Baal and Elijah, who's the representative of the Lord God of Israel. And his question is going to be symbolic, not only that story of Obadiah, but Ahab. He says in verse 21, how long halt ye between two opinions? And we could ask that same question today. Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. You can't partake of the tree of life and be in the great and spacious building. How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But how long do you waver between Jehovah and Ahab, Obadiah, How long do you falter between Balaam and Jehovah? We've all seen people who go through periods where they're really trying to believe and to live, but then they backslide. And maybe we all do this at some point or in some way, but I think there's something to be said about just making a choice and then staying with it and being consistent. And the same thing could be asked of us. How long do you halter between the world and God? So he's going to create this showdown. He's going to say, look, let's both make an offering to our God, and whoever's God sends down fire is the God. Let's have a showdown. 
So in verse 23, let them therefore give us two bullocks and let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under it. Call ye on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of my God and the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. That's a good challenge. And so the priests of Baal go first. And they took the bullock, and they dressed it, and they put it on the altar, and they start crying out to Baal, but there was no voice, nor any that answered. And Elijah kind of eggs them on, and he begins to say, cry louder. Maybe he's on the phone. (laughs) Maybe he went on a vacation, and he's just kind of mocking that no one's listening. You're calling on something that's not there. Now, this is an interesting twist on the role of a prophet. I just can't find myself believing that a prophet is mocking and making fun. I don't know if this is just a little exaggeration to make a point, but they began to cry aloud. They cut themselves with knives, and it doesn't happen. There was no voice, no answer, nor any that regarded. And now it's Elijah's turn. So he repairs the altar of the Lord. He gets the wood ready. And then he says, look, fill four barrels full of water and pour it on mine. He says, do it a second time. So now we're up to eight barrels of water. He says, do it a third time. Now we're up to 12 barrels of water that has been doused on this altar. And then Elijah stands up and prays and says, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust, and licked up 12 barrels of water that were still obviously there in the trenches. And everyone knew. Verse 39, all the people fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. You know, this phrase is used in other places in the Old Testament. We read this in Deuteronomy 4, and this phrase was later used as the culminating confession of faith at the conclusion of the Day of Atonement. At the conclusion of Yom Kippur, they would say, the Lord, he is God. And so this is kind of a continuation of those ideas. And everyone knew, the Lord, he is the God. Now, this is not common that the Lord thunders down and proves that he is God in heaven. But every once in a while, God does, in fact, prove himself. He does, in fact, have proving miracles come that leave us with great evidence that he exists. May I be so bold as to say that he's done the same thing in our day. The Book of Mormon is his proof. Coming out of the apostasy, God said to all the world, how long halt ye between two opinions? And he's basically saying, I'm here. I have returned to earth, and I'm going to prove it. 
in our day, God has put his godhood to a test. In the early part of the Doctrine and Covenant, section 17, the Lord says, speaking of Joseph Smith, he has translated the book, even that part which I have commanded him. And as your Lord and your God liveth, it is true. In other words, the Book of Mormon is the proof that we have today that Jehovah is God. And he's thrown that down as a challenge. Show me where this book came from if you can. I refer you to a wonderful talk by Elder Holland in 2009 called Safety for the Soul, in which he said, for 179 years, this book has been examined and attacked, denied and deconstructed, targeted and torn apart like perhaps no other book in modern religious history, perhaps like no other book in any religious history, and still it stands. Failed theories about its origin have been born and parroted and have died from Ethan Smith to Solomon Spaulding to deranged paranoia to cunning genius. None of these frankly pathetic answers for this book has ever withstood examination because there is no other answer than the one Joseph gave as its young, unlearned translator. In this, I stand with my own great-grandfather who said simply enough, No wicked man could write such a book as this, and no good man would write it unless it were true and he were commanded of God to do so. I think as you read the story of Elijah and you say to yourself, why doesn't he do that today? With all of the Baal worshipers today, why doesn't God come down and flex his muscles and prove to the world who he is? And I would say to you, he has. He put his godhood on the line, and it is in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is his proof. No one has been able to explain any other legitimate theory for how the Book of Mormon came to be than Joseph Smith's claim that it was translated by the gift and power of God. And therein is the position of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that God has flexed his muscles. How else do you explain the fact that a 24-year-old with limited education, he did it in one draft in the presence of multiple witnesses who testify he didn't use any external material. He never went back and made major revisions. He never asked the scribe to go back. Now, what did we say back then 200 pages ago? Let's say the same thing today. He just flowed. The internal consistency of the Book of Mormon is pretty good stuff. I mean, that's pretty good evidence alone, especially when you get into some of the complexities. And then you get into what scholars have discovered after the publication and how we can go back and we can see some of those evidences in the Book of Mormon. For those of you interested, Bryce and I have talked about many times throughout the Book of Mormon podcasts, different evidences of the authenticity of the Book of Mormon, and I love them. I love to get into the Book of Mormon's evidences, but for me, the main evidence is spiritual. But as I've gone down the road of academia and really try to get into the weeds of the languages and what's going on in the Bible, I'm more convinced than ever that the Book of Mormon 
is outside of Joseph Smith's possible expertise or anything that he could have possibly acquired in a library or with a computer or any of those kinds of things. Now, obviously, computers didn't exist, but the point I'm trying to make is I love the edict in Section 88 that we're to seek learning by study and also by faith. I have faith based on my spiritual convictions, but there also is a rational basis for faith. And so I think as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we're kind of like Obadiah. We live in two worlds. We live in the house of faith, Jerusalem, but we also live in the house of reason, Athens. To me, Athens and Jerusalem can coexist. And if that book is true, do you see the position we're in? Just like this showdown with the priests of Baal, if that book is true, then Joseph was in fact a prophet. There was in fact apostasy and a need for a restoration. There was in fact a restoration of keys, which Joseph holds. If the Book of Mormon is true, then the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the restored Church of God on earth, and it is led by a prophet. And God does live, and he has made himself known again on this earth. That's the position we're in with the Book of Mormon. I just, I can't help but see this showdown with the priests of Baal and God's showdown with the Book of Mormon and not see a pattern there. Bryce, you're making a good point. Sometimes we ask, well, where is the pillar of fire today? And maybe, maybe it's right in front of us. Yeah. So when all of this is over, when the Lord has made the point that Jehovah is the God on earth, it's time for the famine to end. So Elijah says, hey, get you up. There's going to be rain in Israel. Um, and he goes up to the top of the mountain, prays, and here comes the rain. Elijah says it, and here comes the rain, and the famine is over. Now, in the beginning of 19, Elijah is really kind of depressed. If you look in verse 4, it says that he went a day's journey to wilderness, and he came and sat down under a juniper tree. And then it says, he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough, O Lord, take away my life. I am not better than my father's. We see this also in Jonah. If you go to Jonah chapter four, verse eight, Jonah says kind of the same thing. Lord, kill me now. Moses said it as well. Yeah, we see this in different places. We see kind of this image in the Psalm of Nephi, where Nephi is just so despondent. And I think part of the message of 1 Kings 19.4 and these other passages that we've referenced is that when we sign up to serve the Lord, it doesn't mean that everything is rainbows and unicorns. We're going to have some days that are just, frankly, no fun. And so he's in the midst of this state. Now, why is he in the midst of this state? I think part of it is he sees that even though they've had the evidence, Jezebel is still doing her thing. She's still hunting down the prophets. We see this also at the end of the story where, and this is found in Helaman, where Nephi tells them who killed the chief judge. And he shows them the sign and he tells them what's going to happen. And all of Nephi's words come to pass. And then the story reads that everyone walked away from him and he found himself alone. And there's something about that. I think we've all been in times of our lives where we're trying to do what's right and we're just totally alone. And I mean, the classic example is the Savior. He's in Gethsemane and he can't even get his apostles to stay awake. And he says, can you guys just stay awake for a little bit? And he's alone. Yeah. And there's this beautiful moment in Jeremiah chapter 20, which we'll get to Jeremiah in a few weeks. 
Jeremiah is the prophet of the Babylonian captivity. He's the one that cries out, and there's destruction, and everyone hated him. But Jeremiah says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me, and in derision daily. So he's just despondent. He's frustrated because in doing his job, it's made him a hated man. And then he has this beautiful moment where he says, Then said I, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more of his name. And I know it's easy to have that. I'm done. I'm no longer going to do this because as I do this, people hate me. And then there's this beautiful moment where Jeremiah says, but his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with foreboding and I could not stay. In other words, I can't not do it. I can't walk away. I know it's true. Hard, yes, but I can't walk away. And I think that needs to be told in the other side. I know that that's going on in Elijah's heart. I know he's despondent. I know he's frustrated. And there's a loneliness in leadership, especially in righteous leadership. But if he has that Jeremiah moment where he says, I'm not going to do this anymore. I know there was that moment was, yes, I am because I can't walk away. I just think that's a beautiful moment we need to add. Yeah. And then from this, we read in verse five that an angel Lord touched him and told him to arise and eat, and he does. And then a second time, the angel of the Lord came, this is verse seven, and touched him and said, arise and eat because the journey is too great for thee. And verse eight says, he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb, the Mount of God. Now, I don't think this is Horeb that's at St. Catherine's Monastery, many, many miles away, because you see he's at Carmel, but it's probably another Mount Horeb that, we, that at least I don't know about, but he walks to a mountain. And then now the Lord comes to him in verse nine and he says, what are you doing here? In verse 10, he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord of hosts for the children of Israel have forsaken the covenant and they've thrown down thine altars and slain the prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. You see, we have right here in verse 10 of chapter 19, where Elijah believes that the prophets have been slain. But I don't think they have been. You see, when we get to 2 Kings 2, we talked about this earlier, but we have 50 sons of the prophets who go with Elijah to his ascent. Now, I don't know because it's not very specific, so I'm going to read it the way I kind of envisioned this in my head. So just know this is kind of how I view it. When Elijah crosses the river with the 50 sons of the prophets, and then when we get to where Elijah takes the mantle off, which we're going to do next week. I believe that the 50 sons of the prophets are there, that they're the choral arrangement, and that as he ascends, the music intensifies with the chorus because it lends to a drama. I see this whole story of Elijah's ascent as a temple drama. That's kind of how I see this. In fact, a lot of times, anciently, they had this big circular flat space where the chorus would do their stuff, and they wouldn't just sing, they would dance. In the very middle of the circle was an altar. And I think that it's really interesting that the middle of this whole story is the altar of God, 
where Elijah calls down the power of heaven. And so my take on this, and I think this is a really important message that maybe applies to us today, is a lot of times the adversary wants to make you think you're all by yourself. And so in verse 4, he's depressed. In verse 10, he's depressed, and he thinks he's alone. And I think a really good message that we can take and apply is when we go to church, we look around and we see we are not alone. And I think knowing that is a really big deal in the gospel of Jesus Christ, because if there's anything the adversary wants to try and convince me of, a lot of times it's, okay, you're crazy, you're alone, and and he wants to pick us off and separate us. I mean, from the very beginning in Genesis, what does Satan do when he approaches Adam and Eve? He tries to separate them. I want to get Adam to eat the fruit so he'll be separated from his wife. And I really see that as one of the messages. And I think it's important for us to realize, no, we are not alone. And I think that's part of what the podcast community is, is we're listening to the podcast from Come Follow Me and we realize, hey guys, we're in this together. And I wonder if that was a big deal to Elisha. Elisha must have been one of those background prophets, background voices, who probably saw that Elijah struggled with this, and he probably saw that Elisha felt like he was alone, even when Elisha was there for him, which will maybe cause Elisha to say to his servant in a moment of that same despondency, fear not, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Maybe that's where Elisha learned that lesson, is watching Elijah. And maybe we all need to learn that lesson. Fear not, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Now, the very next story is not only confirming to Elijah that God is with him, but there's a powerful balancing message. Elijah is a prophet of might. Elijah is this mighty man who calls down fire from heaven and seals the heavens and calls for a famine. And sometimes we get the impression that that's how God is. God is a God of might, and he certainly is. But if you're one of those that looks at your life and says, then where is he in my life? Because I don't see a lot of those call down fire from heaven moments in my life. So where is that, God? And I think chapter 19 is the balance to that. And we need to really, really hear this next story. So in verse 11, the Lord says, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rock before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then a still small voice comes. See, sometimes we think God is the wind that blows me away, or God is the earthquake that shakes me, or God is the fire that just burns my bosom. And we expect these grandiose, marvelous things as evidence of God's love for me. And when we don't see all those grandiose things, we wonder, Maybe he's not there in my life. Maybe I've been forgotten. But I think the normal form he takes in our lives is that still small voice, that quiet assurance in peaceful moments that he's there. Now you go count those. 
you go count the times when that still, small, peaceful voice has gently reassured you that he's listening, that he cares. The time he reminded you where something that was lost could be located. The time he put a reminder in your heart that was very important. The time he just opened your understanding and you just understood something. The times when the still small voice came. That's the message we need to balance Elijah with, is that God was not in the strong wind. God was not in the earthquake. God was not in the fire. He was in the still small voice. Let that be your litmus test. Let that be your measuring stick. The quiet moments when I'm connecting to him in prayer or when I'm singing a hymn or when I'm quietly going about his business and serving him. Let me use three words that Joseph Smith uses in, the, in his history that I think are very significant and pertain to not only recognizing his hand, but trying to help other people feel his hand. Joseph Smith uses three interesting P words, prove, promote, and present. First, in verse six of Joseph Smith's history, he says that the clergy that are kind of competing for converts, trying to get people to come to their congregation, promoting this extraordinary scene of religious feeling. And may I gently say that sometimes when we stand up in sacrament meeting or when we teach a class, we feel like we need to be the wind or the earthquake or the fire, and we need to do something big and glorious, and we promote Now, that doesn't mean that that doesn't happen occasionally, but when we're trying to imitate and get them to feel something big, sometimes we we manipulate emotions and we want them to cry. If we can get them to cry, then we can convince them that they're feeling the Holy Ghost. But God is not in the fire. God is not in the earthquake. In verse 9, he mentions that others were proving. They were using the power of both reason and sophistry to prove. And sometimes that's our earthquake and our fire and our wind. We try to prove the truthfulness of the gospel. We try to prove that we're right. Now, there's a time and a place. I understand that. There's a balance. But we need to understand that that is not the normal form in which God comes. He doesn't come by proving He doesn't blow us away with evidence. He doesn't shake us like an earthquake to prove that he's there. He comes as a still small voice. So let me contrast those two Ps, prove and promote with what Joseph Smith says he's going to do in verse two. He simply says, I shall present. That's all he needs to do. I'm just going to present because I know the still small voice will testify that it's true. We need to look for the peaceful moments where our soul is in tune and we hear that very, very gentle voice. Do you remember in 3rd Nephi when God testifies of Christ two times and they didn't hear it? And then they found, they opened their ears and they heard. That's how God comes most of the time. When we teach, we don't need to prove and promote. We just present truth and trusting that still small voice 
will testify to people that it's true. I know God lives. And yes, I have had occasionally a fire moment or an earthquake moment or a wind moment. But most of the time, the vast majority of the time, I know God lives because of a still small voice. I'm so impressed with Alma, who could have testified of a shaking down from an angel, testified instead of a still small voice. I like that. I think that's important. Thanks, Bryce. We will see you next week when we get into Elijah's successor, Elisha, and his experiences as found in 2 Kings. Thank you for joining us and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.